Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The Chinese Communist Party is effectively taking control over Hong Kong in breach of its 1984 treaty with Britain. The national security law has allowed Carrie Lam, its chief executive, who is appropriately under Magnitsky sanctions, to effectively clamp down on the free press, free speech and peaceful assembly. Thousands of people are facing trial for having peacefully protested for democratic rights. Media outlets like Apple Daily that stood up to all cash carry and the CCP have been targeted and closed shop. Foreign NGOs and democratic watchdogs like Amnesty International are closing their doors and moving out of Hong Kong, lest they also be targeted as agents of foreign collusion in violation of the national security law. Under the Sino-British Joint Declaration, Hong Kongers were to have their basic civil liberties protected, including the right of free speech, the free press and peaceful assembly under the structure of one country, two systems through 2047. Hong Kongers were also guaranteed democratic elections. It's clear that this is not happening. However, even the treaty itself is an insult to Hong Kongers, whom were sold out by an impossant empire that looked to greater trade with China and utilize Hong Kong as its bargaining chip, for only the new territories were under a 99-year lease, with Hong Kong Island and Kowloon ceded to Britain. While Hong Kong became a global economic and cultural powerhouse under British rule, Britain never provided Hong Kongers with universal suffrage, even though Chris Patton did a fair job of trying to place a structure for democracy on his exit as the last British governor of Hong Kong. Britain is continuing to let Hong Kongers down by failing to take China's breaches of this bilateral treaty to the International Court of Justice. China has repudiated the treaty, terming it as a mere historical document of no consequence. The Declaration, which is an international treaty, however, also has its flaws. It also provides for the protection of fundamental freedoms through 2047. Giving people rights to take them away by the tick of the clock is callous and myopic. You can't raise a generation on democratic values and then intend them to simply stand back and let them be taken away. Hong Kongers want autonomy. They want to speak their own language, Cantonese. They want rights that others take for granted, freedom of speech, the free press and universal suffrage. The world needs to stand with Hong Kong. The CCP claims this support is a colonial mindset and anti-Chinese. However, Western nations do not have a monopoly on autonomy and democracy, nor can we equate the CCP with more than the 1.4 billion people it purports to control. The CCP is now in the Human Rights Council, and while it's militarizing the South China Sea, it has also embraced soft power. Chinese money in the film industry, for instance, is being utilized to ensure that there is no big budget feature that dares to criticize it. You're likely not going to see seven years of protest in Hong Kong from a major studio anytime soon, albeit I hope I'm proven wrong on this one. The CCP has also started to flip the human rights conversation back at the West. It issued a lengthy report on human rights violations in the US, which was damning and pretty accurate. And the US is not the only target. Australia and Canada also deservedly, amongst others, have met with the CCP's new human rights rhetoric. The West is hypocritical, it's true, but that doesn't give the CCP carte blanche to rampage the human rights of over one-seventh of the global population. The CCP has sent over 1.3 million Uyghurs to forced labour and sterilisation camps. The CCP is destroying the soul and soil of Tibet by exploiting its rich minerals and water and polluting it, displacing communities, forbidding democracy and purporting to control the Buddhist faith by turning its monasteries into tourist cafes and purporting to oversee the reincarnation of the next Dalai Lama. It purports to be a socialist party, but it cracks down on unionization. 
One of its favorite weapons against democratic dissent is this nebulous law of picking a quarrel and provoking trouble so that anyone speaking out against anything, if deemed undesirable by the party, faces at least five years in prison, and that's just for a minor infraction. And let's not forget that the CCP is eyeing Taiwan under its One China policy, which is undertaking some interesting democratic projects, including crowdsourcing some of its laws and wants its continued independence. Standing up for Hong Kong autonomy and democracy is not anti-Chinese. It's pro-democracy and pro-people. Rights are not static and immutable, and unless we're vigilant, we can also lose our rights. And if we do, whom do we turn to if we let everyone else's fall away? We must stand up for each other, as people, for people. We are all Hong Kongers. I spoke with Alex Chow and Brian Lung, who were instrumental in the 2014 and 2019 democratic protests, respectively, and who are now working for Hong Kong autonomy and democracy in the United States through the Hong Kong Democracy Council. At great personal risk to themselves, they stood up for their people's democratic rights. Welcome to Gravity, Brian and Alex. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to speak with you. So, Brian, you're currently sitting as the executive director, and Alex, you are on the board of Hong Kong Democracy Council, a nonprofit based in DC. May you please tell our audience about the Hong Kong Democracy Council's mission and advocacy? Sure. Uh, Hong Kong Democracy Council, HKDC, is the first nonpartisan nonprofit organization based in Washington, DC. And our mission is really to advocate the cause of Hong Kong and to raise international awareness about, you know, the human rights situation and democratic development in Hong Kong. We also want to strengthen and build a very robust uh, diaspora community where Hong Kong people across the world, especially in the United States, is going to organize themselves and continue to advocate for the cause of Hong Kong here. Wonderful. Before we get into what's happening in Hong Kong currently, I, I wanted to go back to the handover on July 1, 97, and the effect of the Basic Law, which was drafted based on the joint declaration between Britain and China and purported to be a quasi-constitutional document of this special administrative region, providing autonomy and protection of basic freedoms, including peaceful assembly and free speech under Chapter 3. Hong Kong was meant to be an autonomous region under one country, two systems through 2047, but we've seen how the former has eaten the latter, and that is not uh, true right now. But um, it's kind of like the sword of Democles, but for the people, with the tyrant having expressly timed the precise moment of when the sword would slice. And I just wanted to ask before we get into what's happening on the ground now, how did anyone think that you could give people freedom for 50 years and then just take it away like that and that there wouldn't be any resistance? Right. I think, uh, you know, it was a very unfortunate, uh, you know, development in the history of Hong Kong. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the handover, the transfer of sovereignty you mentioned uh, in, Charles, uh, in 1997 actually, you know, gave a lot of hope for Hong Kong people where they genuinely believe that, you know, there might be room for them to uh, safeguard their liberty and gradually move to a, a more democratic system. And then, you know, uh, when I was uh, born in 1994 and then gradually, you know, uh, grew up in Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, in Charleston and Free, we have a massive mobilization, uh, you know, uh, and then in, in the next couple of years, people keep mobilizing themselves to fight for a universal suffrage, right? So there is 
was a hope that you know we can eventually move toward a democratic system. But that uh, you know that hope was uh, eventually squashed by the Chinese uh, you know uh, Communist Party in saying that you know uh, the one country two system uh, uh, was actually not a promise that we we we, we will honor. And then what what eventually comes is about the total grip of power by Beijing. And then you know so Hong Kong people realize uh, that actually you know China never intended. To, to offer democracy and protection of freedom in Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I just want to anchor what, what Brian has just said. Like, Brian was born uh, in 1994, and I, I was born in 1990. Uh, just four years old, older than Brian. But I was also in shock. Like, well, I, I think, like, growing up in Hong Kong, I, I, I never imagined that, like, well, uh, we would not be able to, like, return to Hong Kong uh, once we choose to, like, well, go overseas for work or study. Uh, I never imagined that like we'll be in exile like what we have been getting to uh, since like uh, 2020 or uh, 2019. Uh, so this is not like a new experience to us, and it's just, like well, uh, we are completely in short, and it's also quite shocking to, 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 to like well, to tell the story, even to say that like well, hey, that our freedom will only be promised for 50 years, and it will be taken away. Um, my conclusion to, to your surprise is that like, well, we should really never take anything for granted. It is always by accident and something that we, we tend to see as universal and, 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 and uh, like given for granted, they could be gone overnight uh, with a snapshot. Um, and, and, and it could be quite shocking. Yeah, and I think your organization's T-shirt, We Are All Hong Kong Is, I think we are because I think that that's what it means, right? That unless you're vigilant about your rights, you will lose them. That can happen anywhere. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, what the Hong Kong story teach the world is really about, right? You know, don't get, uh, you know, uh, too comfortable with the freedom and, you know, political right that you have today. If you are not prepared to mobilize and to defend your institution and defend your right, you know, it, it could be fallen, you know, very shortly overnight, as uh, Alex mentioned. So I think Hong Kong as a, uh, in, uh, used to be an international society where major international business, freedom of press, freedom of association, international organization, you know, we used to be a hub to host all that kind of activity and exchange, right? So I think, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the 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 dismantling of Hong Kong freedom, I think, really teach the world a lesson about, you know, how vigilant we have to be, as you mentioned. I want to now address Occupy Central in 2014 and the 79 days of sit-ins in the start of the Umbrella Movement, an umbrella against a tear gas canister. The numbers of people on the street in support of universal suffrage were staggering, a real testament to the democratic spirit that was in Hong Kong. Alex, you were one of the lead organizers of this movement. Can you tell us more about what precipitated it, how the government reacted to it, and the consequences of it, and why you decided to risk so much for it? To your question, I think I think the umbrella movement uh, it, it broke out out of like a, a desperation and also aspiration for for democracy and for self governance. Uh, as we've talked about earlier, like Hong Kong was promised uh, a freedom for fifty years. So in that promise, like people tend to see or interpret uh, that promise as a way um, to like well, reform the city's political system. That like well, one day, uh, folks 
uh, people in the city will enjoy uh, one person, one vote, and we'll be able to elect our city leaders and our legislators so we can self-govern the city. And and it's just and, and the reason for that is because like well, when Hong Kong uh, was like being discussed to like to hand it back to China, uh, Hong Kong was adopting a radically different system uh, compared to uh, uh, mainland China. Uh, Hong Kong was governed by the British, and then it was adopting uh, kind of like well a, a more capitalist uh, market oriented system. And by then, in the 1980s, like while well, uh, mainland China was still adopting a socialist system with uh, with a, a with an authoritarian regime, so like well, uh, with that uh, like well, fundamental difference and divergence, uh, the 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 only uh, like well um, uh, like reason or uh, the only promise that could really convince people to stay or remain in Hong Kong after 1997. The year to return Hong Kong to China was to say that, like, well, hey, Hong Kong people, we be promised democracy, uh, one people, one vote. Uh, folks would be able to, like, well, govern themselves, to rule the city. Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. That's the man. That's the motto. Like, uh, Hong Kong people have always been, like, well, repeating or chanting, because that was the what that was a promise, like, a well, promise or given by the British and the Chinese government in the 1980s. Uh, but by, like, well. Like 2014, like well, it was like more uh, like uh, halfway into the contract, uh, the folks started to realize that like, hey, like if we don't fight on and if we don't rise out, then perhaps we could never see democracy or self-governance be implemented in the city uh, one day. And you just have to like well, uh, fight the government and fight the regime has on to debate on like well your your basic rights, your your fundamental rights. Uh, to, to really voice out what your aspiration and your demand is. And so folks like, well, before the 2014, uh, Occupy or Umbrella Movement broke out, folks have been like, well, uh, trying to like, well, exhaust all means, uh, to really to like, well, mobilize, uh, uh, like, well, uh, their companions, uh, in, in the city and try to persuade the government that like to, to give way, uh, to people to self-govern. So, like, well, folks might, might engage in different sort of campaigns to organize, like, conferences, forums, uh, to travel to Europe, to attend, like, well, a UN panel, uh, uh, to try to, like, well, debate with, like, a government officials, uh, on the street or in university on campus or, uh, legal professionals or, like, our human rights organization or social movement organization. They might also like well uh, mobilize themselves and, and rally uh, so as to like well ask for or urge the government to to give like the city like to give the people of Hong Kong a real reform. Uh, like after like uh, like more like a two year long campaign, um, the, the government, the Hong Kong government and the Beijing government still decided that like they would not give uh, like Hong Kong people true democracy, and hence. Uh, you see, you know, like huge anger and a sense of injustice uh, felt by the people, and they felt like, hey, we just have to do something. So uh, the students uh, launched a, a weak strike, and then uh, and then uh, like the, the police like well came in and and tried to crack down uh, some of the students' action, and like police started like well throwing tear gas into the streets. Like uh, trying to like well uh, like like urge people to go home uh, by force, and that was like the the moment when when the police like well, escalated their force, 
like our protesters or citizens of Hong Kong uh, fought back. And that was like the moment that triggered the umbrella movement. And it lasts for uh, 79 days. Uh, it was a, it was like a, it was a very unforgettable, uh, scene in the history of Hong Kong, just because like, well, it was like, well, a, a new chapter for, uh, the, the, the people of Hong Kong to really, um, fight on, to really resist, to say that, hey, we, we, we have had enough of this kind of governance. We need to take back our rights. We need to take back the control of our city. And we are going to occupy the place until, uh, the government can see. Uh, surely the, the, the tactics, the strategy didn't work out as predict, but that also uh, laid the foundation for the uh, for the later movement, like the social movement in 2016 and another democracy movement in 2019. And you, along with Nathan Law, who sits on Hong Kong Democracy Council's advisory board, were charged with unlawful assembly and I believe also incitement and you received a prison sentence, which was commuted by the Court of Final Appeal. And it's wonderful that your sentence was commuted, but the judgment is worrisome. Firstly, the conviction stood and they continued to stand. And Chief Justice Ma, now I'm getting this secondhand because I could not, I tried, but I could not find the actual judgment. Chief Justice Ma commented that it uh, applied a new standard retroactively and therefore it was commuted, but he gave the green light in the future for harsher sentences and said that Hong Kong must curb these elements of disorder. I mean, that's a that's terrifying. Right, that is quite terrifying. Um, the, the, our, our court case or the judgment laid down by uh, the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong like the, the, the case you just mentioned, I think it like a fully illustrated dynamic, uh, always facing the Hong Kong court or the legal professional in Hong Kong. Like, well, uh, on the one hand, like, well, most of our judges or uh, legal professionals, like attorneys, like our lawyers, uh, they have been trained under the British system. So they know and adopt a common law system. Like Brian has a law degree, he might be able to uh, illustrate or explain further. But like, so that's, that, that's usually the case on the one hand. But on the other hand, like our judges also don't want to offend like uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And, and when it comes to like well, sensitive cases, uh, political charges, they always have to like well, strike a, a, a balance to see like well, how on the one hand they could uphold a higher standard, uh, uh, like we're following the common law system, the common law practice. But on the other hand, how not to offend like well, the, the Chinese Commerce, Communist Party so they could like well maintain their autonomy, maintain their self-governing space as a legal community, as a legal professional. And that's why like well, you would always see like a ruling that is a mix of a book. Uh, that is quite like well weird and bizarre to see that they try to like well, pretend or maintain a progressive, a liberal voice. But at the same time, they are like, well, uh, like uh, assisting the government in cracking down or dismantling the civil society in Hong Kong. Right. I think if my, if I may add, right, uh, in 2014, you know, the, the idea or the theory of civil disobedience actually got a lot of buy-in from citizens. And it was championed by leaders such as Alex himself, right? So the idea is that, you know, peaceful protesters are going to confront the government and would not cooperate in the normal functioning or would explicitly violate certain law to demonstrate 
their demand and the injustice of the system, and then they would use the legal process as a way to continue their, you know, voicing out of their concerns and you know uh, uh, and demands, right? So part of the judicial process is also part of that protest, and that got so much attention and buy-in from the citizens that the government was actually very afraid of that, right? Because even a normal citizen would have sympathy for people who violate the law on paper, but they sympathize with their, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, they understand that as a way for them to protest and, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, and fight for democracy, right? So I think in retaliation, the government, the government really stepped up and then pushed the punishment and the sentences for even a normal assembly, right? You know, a, quote unquote, unlawful assembly to a point where it could be up to years, even if you participate in a peaceful protest, right? Uh, I think it's a way to tell the government is actually afraid of the people, you know, adopting the idea of civil disobedience and they usually harsh legal punishment to, 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 to counter that, right? Power has this contradictory aspect to it, right? Because it's not a thing, it's a relation. And so it's always inherently vulnerable because it needs uh, people to accept it. And I keep thinking of the uh, the children's books that were banned and how this really shows the anxiety of the Chinese Communist Party r- rather than its power. I mean, they're, they're afraid of a children's book that talks about the, uh, the sheep town and explains uh, the you know guardians of the sheep town and I, th- I think there's five and I mean it's it's horrible and terrifying that they've um, arrested the the publishers and the authors but on the other hand it, it does show this latent anxiety and inherent vulnerability of power that it needs to stampede upon all of this because in the end the people can resist right absolutely I think uh, you know it shows how you know Beijing actually knows that, you know, powers come from everyday life resistance, right? You know, uh, it could be about people circulating, you know, a piece of uh, news. Uh, government want to stop that, right? They don't want to want people to get access to the truth, right? It's about people, you know, gathering for, you know, uh, you know, for commemoration event for certain past protest event, right? You know, the government want to stop that because they don't want people to you know, cherish and, you know, honor the public memory of our past struggle, right? They will squash them. It's even so absurd to a point where, uh, you know, people would organize and um, buy M&M, you know, chocolate for prisoner as a way to show solidarity, right? They were being actually arrested for for buying M&Ms and sending it to prison, right? It shows how like, you know, the vulnerability of the actual you know, political order in Hong Kong where the government is actually fearing the people for, you know, li- living in, 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 in the truth, right? You know, if, if we, if we, if we cite hate on that, right? To, to, to live out and, you know, the everyday struggle and find every way where they can resist the power of the government. So I think the government is really vulnerable on that, on that front. In connection to, to the children's book and also uh, power relation, uh, that discussion also reminds me of like, well, how um, like relation building or relationship building, uh, it, it like, well, it could also be a positive thing. Like, well, like well, the government could try to like, well, punish people by punishing uh, you, then uh, like uh, by extension, also punish your, your families or friends. 
But for uh, the activists or from a social movement perspective, uh, that's perhaps like illustrate exactly the point on why relation building is so important. And in the case of the children's book, uh, we sort of like about know like about one person involved in the case, and she's actually like our peer, like well during our uh, college time. And what we understand is like well just because of uh, her. Uh, she like well being put in un, un, in custody. Uh, her partners was also trying extremely hard to support uh, this person uh, who is being prosecuted, and 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 the conviction and and the determination uh, brought out of like the suffering of her uh, his peers. It actually also like well ex exemplifies like well the spirit of, of the movement. How like well. Uh, like ordinary citizens or ordinary protesters, they could also like well, generate uh, another sort of power uh, resisting uh, uh, the power used by the government for, for crackdown. And uh, uh, the activists and ordinary citizens themselves could also come up with power if we could like well, cultivate our relation uh, within and beyond the community so we can stand in solidarity like against any violence uh, like uh, exert or impose like uh, on us. So following on from uh, relationship building and collaboration, but also I guess it's sort of a segue, but what's interesting about the new ways of uh, posing power and, and finding them is that before it, the legal reference system in Hong Kong, which is managed by its uh, judiciary, apparently didn't provide judgments of lower courts. And the official reason is they just don't have the resources to do that. But then with all the arrests currently uh, going through the courts, the trials of the protesters in 2019, lawyers got together and um, they started this, com uh, I think it's called the Compendium Project. They uh, launched it in June. They have over 500 protest-related cases. They are putting a search engine through it so that lawyers who are defending protesters can look up, what did this magistrate judge do in this particular matter? Did they convict? What was the sentencing? And this allows lawyers to more effectively argue on behalf of their clients and protect protesters. And this didn't happen before. You know, you should have open judgments. In a way, this has launched something that wasn't there previously. And so I suppose you can only see the stars in the darkness that there is some, you know, good effect of this. Like people are getting more proactive because of what's happening. Right. I think, uh, you know, the lawyers actually tried to organize among themselves uh, starting in uh, 2015. There is a group called Progressive Lawyers Group that are very vocal, uh, especially in terms of human rights appeals and the legal front, uh, and, you know, and, you know, violation of due procedure, uh, overly harsh judgment, etc. right? But unfortunately, in the era of national security law that we can, you know, uh, actually, uh, we can talk more about that, is that, you know, a lot of civic groups, such as progressive lawyers group, are forced to either silence themselves or disband themselves, right? And the project you mentioned actually comes from a certain, you know, very young lawyer or even their law student who think that there is a lack of systemic documentation uh, uh, and information about, you know, the, the phenomenon you mentioned, right? There are over 10,000, you know, protesters who have been arrested, several thousands being actually formally prosecuted. And, you know, uh, many of them, their, you know, their story are never reported in the public media, right? So 2019 movement uh, was termed a fa faceless movement where normal citizens just rise up 
and then they would, you know, uh, you know, have their mask on, and they would not reveal their identity, but they would act in solidarity in a protest, right? But when once they got, you know, uh, uh, arrested, prosecuted, and got, uh, you know, siphoned into the the labyrinth of the whole legal system, nobody would actually pay, you know. Uh, you know, media attention to those cases, right? So I think what they have done, you know, those students and young lawyers have done is an extraordinary project where they document, systematize the whole, uh, you know, legal uh, uh, prosecution or persecution, if you will. And then I think it allows future, you know, maybe academics who are interested in analyzing the pattern or the strategy or, you know, what leads to certain, you know, judgment uh, or sentences, right? I think those, those resources are from, you know, those grassroots efforts in documenting, in analyzing, uh, you know, uh, uh, as, you know, the deterioration of, uh, you know, freedom and, you know, the, 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 the violation of rule of law in Hong Kong is very important. And I think, you know, uh, I would urge, you know, academics or other lawyers, maybe, you know, in, in the United States to pick up on those information and maybe help advocate, uh, you know, on behalf of those uh, uh, victim and defendant and generate more knowledge out of that where we can build, you know, a, a you know, concrete policy agenda item out of that. I want to now turn to the extradition law in 2019 and the umbrella movement in 2019. Now, <laughs> purportedly, the extradition law came about because Carrie Lam is so compassionate and uh, she wanted to give justice to bereaved parents. Uh, because their murdered daughter was killed in Taiwan by her boyfriend, who was also uh, from Hong Kong. Um, and it seems that he voluntarily wanted to go to Taiwan and um, face uh, his murder trial there. So it didn't really seem like there was a need for an extradition law at all. Um, also, maybe efforts would have been better spent on figuring out how uh, one person that ha- that the court has personal jurisdiction over that murdered another person that the court has personal jurisdiction over, even if not in the territory, um, could uh, lead to, you know, jurisdiction uh, for the crime when they uh, return to Hong Kong. I mean, that just seems like a natural step to me, but it was a great opportunity, wasn't it, for um, the CCP because uh, Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong authorities saw Taiwan as uh, part of uh, China. So therefore any extradition to um, Taiwan would also be to the mainland. Now, Brian, I wanted to talk about the response to this extradition law, the umbrella movement, and also why you famously were the lone protester who unmasked yourself in the Legislative Council. And demanded peaceful assembly, uh, withdrawal of the bill, investigation into police violence and universal suffrage. Right, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, right, the government in 2019 proposed uh, extradition arrangement that on paper makes no sense. As you, as you talk about, right, you know, the, the alleged, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, victim and the electric crime happened actually in Taiwan. The Hong Kong government you know, uh, explicitly, you know, propose an extradition bill that allow Hong Kong people to extradite to mainland China instead, right? That doesn't make sense. And it also triggered a lot of fear where, you know, the, the, the Beijing government didn't offer or pro- uh, honor its promise to deliver democracy, right? 
now in 2019, they want to tear down the final you know, firewall between Hong Kong and China. And that is the judicial independence of the Hong Kong court and, you know, judiciary, right? Now, if people could be extradited back to China, you know, uh, you know, China can claim that, you know, certain activists have violated Chinese law, for example, subverting the state, which would be a very, uh, you know, a severe crime. They can actually be handed back to China for, uh, you know, a trial. And that would be outside of the control of the Hong Kong judicial system, right? So that tearing down of the firewall really, you know, uh, was seen as a lot of Hong Kong people as the last straw, right? That, you know, broke the whole one country, two system promise. And they decided they have to mobilize and have to let the world know that China is actually, you know, violating its promise. And, you know, hence the, the, the massive mobilization in June. And, you know, the interesting story was that, well, I was actually finishing my master's degree and master thesis while the initial mobilization of the protest happened in uh, June, right? So I was watching, along with other overseas Hong Kong, uh, you know, the live broadcast of all the protests and protests are being bitten up by, uh, by the police, right? So I think it was a very emotional, very emotional uh, weeks. Uh, for many Hong Kong people, whether they are uh, in the local city or whether they are abroad, right? So I immediately flew back to Hong Kong once I finished my master's degree. Uh, and then I joined the protest once uh, on the same thing, uh, on the same day where I, I landed in, in the city, right? And, you know, uh, after several uh, massive mobilization where you have two million people took to the street, we're talking about almost a quarter of the whole city population rising up against and peacefully demonstrating on the street. And we, they got ignored by the government. The government say, we're going to press on with this bill, right? That trigger, you know, even more anger. And along that journey, actually, several young protesters, you know, uh, choose to end their life as a way to protest. So I think that adds an extra emotional toll to many Hong Kong people. So that frustration and that anger and that inability to change the government you know, policy uh, culminated in uh, July 1st protest, right? So, for, uh, you know, again, we mentioned July 1st was a very symbolic day where the sovereignty of Hong Kong was transferred back to China in uh, July 1st, 20, uh, 1997, right? So uh, some, you know, pro-Beijing camp obviously saw this day as a celebration of the quote unquote return to motherland, right? But to many Hong Kong people, they see this day as a as, as a break of the promises to uh, you know for democracy and human rights in Hong Kong, right? So uh, a lot of protesters chose uh, on that day to occupy uh, the Legislative Council, right? So I was uh, among one of them where I entered the Legislative Council and the Legislative Chamber, right? So uh, to me, once I enter into that chamber. The, the, the very stark contrast was like our people tried to get into that chamber via election, but you block all the electoral reform and don't allow us to elect our representative to that chamber. Now the people chose another way to protest, and then we, uh, you know, uh, enter the chamber and then we read out a, a manifesto, uh, a statement on behalf of all the protesters. Uh, and then, you know, that statement was read by me. And then the statement lists out the five demands that was uh, being, you know, championed throughout the movement. That include, as we mentioned, you know, the withdrawal of the extradition bill, 
but also to the systemic cause of the whole episode, right? That is the lack of democracy. So in that statement, we also demand universal suffrage that is promised in the basic law, right? So that was the whole incident and the background of that incident. So now I want to address the national security law, which came into effect on June 30, 2020. Uh, Since that time, there has been a veritable war on free speech, free press and free assembly. I mean, there was before, but the government is emboldened and now it's done it with legislative force. Um, And uh, currently there are a few independent papers left in Hong Kong. There's uh, the Hong Kong Free Press, which um, I read quite a bit. (laughs) Um, And uh, I I worry that, you know, independent press is now going to self-censor. Um, to avoid the fate of Apple Daily. So mixed in with um, some rather salacious commentary, Apple Daily also provided pertinent political and social commentary and criticized the government's war on peaceful assembly and called for international sanctions on um, Hong Kong leaders and the CCP leaders for violating free speech and free assembly in Hong Kong. So Apple Daily was targeted right away under the NSL as an agent of foreign subversion. (laughs) Its bank accounts frozen, its leaders jailed, and they had no recourse than to stop. And when you go on their website now, there's absolutely nothing. They took everything down. Um, Their last edition was June 24, 2021, I believe. And now the government is legislating this fake news law, which just sounds horribly ominous. And I hope it doesn't, but it looks like it's going to spell the death of independent media in Hong Kong. May you please tell our audience more about the closure of Apple Daily, the fake news bill, and how the national security law impacts free press in Hong Kong? Absolutely. I think, uh, uh, you know, Alex and I grew up in an era of Hong Kong where we treasure the city so much because, uh, you know, it's the only place where you can criticize the Chinese government freely. You can point out its human rights violation. You can debate about the city's future. Uh, and then, you know, you can freely exchange and express whatever, you know, opinion you have, right? That is the beauty of Hong Kong. And that is the uh, irreplaceable role of the city in terms of, you know, China's development, right? So I think that freedom of press and freedom of expression uh, is now uh, under complete assault under the national security law. Because, you know, uh, yesterday there are four uh, special repertoire from the uh, uh, United Nations human rights system uh, criticizing that the national security law cheapen, you know, uh, serious charges such as subverting the state or terrorism and then use that extremely liberally and then arbitrarily to, uh, uh, you know, uh, arrest and prosecute citizens and protester, right? So uh, Apple Daily, uh, you know, owner Jimmy Lai was one of those victims where he was charged with colluding with foreign forces and subverting the state, right? So uh, that create a chilling effect among civil society where, okay, actually one of the most recognizable and long-standing uh, uh, pro-democracy press could be taken down overnight and saw its own, uh, you know, put to jail for decades, if not like for life imprisonment, that obviously create a chilling effect in the media landscape in Hong Kong. And it's not just about local media, right? You can also see the the, the relocation of a lot of headquarters of, uh, you know, of international media in terms of the Asians, uh, news coverage, right? A lot of them actually moved to Japan or Taiwan or Singapore just 
to, uh, you know, uh, you know, prevent, you know, the, the consequence of the national security law, right? So I think it's really, uh, it's, it's a really dire situation in terms of uh, uh, internet freedom and press freedom. And the last few standing media that you mentioned, for example, Hong Kong Free Press, I think especially deserve our support, whether we are, you know, in the local city or abroad right now, right? Financially, uh, 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 it will be great if we can support those, you know, who continue to exercise their uh, right and freedom. And it will be great to kind of, you know, uh, support that in, in their work, right? Which is, uh, honestly, uh, there are not many, many uh, media outlets that, 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 that are still standing in Hong Kong. I want to now move to Tiananmen Square and throughout many countries in the world, just that square itself is synonymous with the protests and the massacres that occurred there in 1989. And now, um, even though there were actually student protests in many cities throughout China, but this was the most famous and the photo uh, colloquially called Tank Man the one unidentified student facing a line of five tanks, I mean, that still continues to be one of the most iconic symbols of resistance to power, of truth to power. And uh, in Hong Kong, June 4 was commemorated every year with a large candlelit vigil. Um, A museum was dedicated to the protest and um, its brutal military crackdown. And the Pillar of Sorrows reminded students at the University of Hong Kong of these students' bravery and the Communist Party's brutality at the time. Yet the past two years, under this ostensible reason of public health, even though it was always outside and people could, you know, space out and wear masks, it was prohibited. And the organisers that still held the vigil were arrested and now face prison. The museum was raided and the statute was given... Okay, now, I I can't figure out what happened because the deadline was 5 p.m. Hong Kong time today, which was hours ago, and I really hope the statue um, is saved. I know there's a typhoon coming as well, Um, but it was given that uh, deadline to be taken off uh, university property with an American law firm uh, supporting the university's um, strict deadlines. So what does the Tiananmen Square protest represent to Hong Kong is, and what is the future of its commemoration in Hong Kong? Sure. I think, uh, you know, Alex and I would have a story that we can share. So I'll share mine, and Alex can chime in, obviously. Uh, I think to, to, to Hong Kong people, Tiananmen Square and, you know, the June 4th uh, commemoration event you mentioned, uh, it's actually uh, the, the, the first civic lessons to a lot of citizens. Uh, it introduced us to the idea of freedom. It introduced us to the idea of protest. It introduced us to the idea of democracy that so many Chinese students uh, at that point sacrificed their life to, to, to strive for, right? So I think it's really a civic awakening uh, in terms of our political awareness and now uh, enthusiasm in the pursuit of democracy, right? So I think I, 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 I went to the June 4th commemoration event, you mentioned where we hold uh, a candlelight every year uh, alone without any, you know, without my parents bringing me there, right? I was just curious as a student when I was in my uh, 14, 15 years old, and I went to that square and joined that gathering and introduced me to the whole idea and thoughts and, you know, uh, and the present struggle that, uh, you know, uh, many of the, you know, our, the, the Chinese students have, 
have fought for, right? So I think it was a uh, uh, tragic, but uh, also very uh, uh, inferential uh, memory in, in in the eyes of Hong Kong people, right? But unfortunately, you know, all elements you mentioned, right, uh, uh, actually no longer legally exist in Hong Kong. The, the organizer of the vigil you mentioned was purged completely by national security law. They see their leaders persecuted, their asset persons. You you saw the uh, the museum, uh, you know, that you know, uh, educate the citizens about June Fourth were actually also uh, you know confiscated, right? They are all their access are confiscated by the government. You see the pillar of shame that used to be in the University of Hong Kong campus where Alex and I were alumni. Uh, we actually, you know, spent some time, you know, walking to the campus, gaze up at the faces and the twisting body on the pillar, and then thought, thought about, you know, the history and thought about the, the, the social responsibility of being a, a university student, right? All of them are gone. Uh, you know, it was aided by a, a, a U.S. A global firm, uh, Mayor Brown, uh, uh, where the Hong Kong U order to remove that pillar and then, you know, you can see the complete destruction of all aspects of that public memory being commemorated and being retold to our, uh, you know, our, our, our fellow citizens and, and the next generation to come, right? So I think that shows again, right, the government is trying to, uh, you know, uh, silence all possible dissent and, you know, forbid us from, you know, telling a story that could uh, one day, you know, be a threat to his power, right? So I think it shows how, again, this insecurity of the of, 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 of the authority, uh, and you know, we are thinking about way where how we can support, you know, the struggle and the, and the, and keep telling the story of Hong Kong people and keep telling uh, a public memory to 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 the broader audience in here, for example, in the United States, right? But we need to raise awareness about what's going on in, in Hong Kong right now. Yeah, I, I, I shared a lot of the perspective, like uh, just mentioned by, by Brian. Uh, like, like, like the commemoration of the June 4th incident was like a big part to me and as well as to like uh, many, many young folks and old generation Hong Kongers in Hong Kong. Just because, like, well, by, by having the physical space to commemorate what happened uh, in 1989, the Tiananmen massacre, the Tiananmen crackdown, or the democracy movement of China in 1989, it was already uh, an, an immense achievement that you could not replicate elsewhere. Like, you just like to think about or, or compare Hong Kong to, like, well, uh, other cities in mainland China or even, like, well, uh, cities in, in the Western countries, you can find no place like beyond Hong Kong, like we're commemorating, uh, the June 4th incident, uh, for, for, for 30 years with still like, well, a high turnout, like a, a massive participation, uh, like, well, going to the Victoria Park in Hong Kong, holding their candlelight, chanting, uh, saying that they would never forgive and forget, like, what happened in 1989. And just by like, well, being in Hong Kong itself, like, well, growing up in the city physically, uh, happening to have the chance to like, well, to attend the, the Virgil, uh, it, it really like agitates and, and, and shapes, uh, people's like, well, behavior and our upbringing. Like, well, you were, as Brian said, like, we were taught, like, well, the idea of like democracy and liberty. 
justice, fairness, and how to discern uh, uh, rights from wrong and what happened in 1989, it really provides a, a fertile ground like well, for uh, the growing up of the civil society and, and the citizens and the youngsters of Hong Kong who were born after 1989. We've never been there uh, when, when, when the 1989 movement or, or massacre happened. But we were happened to like, well, take it as part of our history to see like, well, how Hong Kong on many levels is connected like, well, to, to the fight for, for democracy, for liberty. And now we are facing the same opponents, the same challengers that like, well, shared by like, many of the students and, 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 and democracy protesters in 1989. And how we could like, well, transcend uh, those struggles and to overcome those hurdles it would be it would be it would be a future shared by uh, many of us that we have to rethink how we could sustain our civil society and, and continue our fight in and beyond Hong Kong. So, like, well, the, the lifeblood of uh, of a democracy movement would not vanish just by like the this, this appearance of um, of like well uh, 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 like the physical space of like well being able to commemorate like the June 4th uh, uh, incident in Hong Kong. I wanted to uh, ask about internet access in Hong Kong. I was reading that uh, the 2021 Hong Kong Charter, and I also want you, um, if you may, to explain um, to our audience uh, about the 2021 Hong Kong Charter and um, and its letter. And um, I... I I was reading that it, it's not accessible anymore and that many other sites are not accessible anymore. I mean, it has the is the internet not free anymore in Hong Kong? Is is China controlling Hong Kong's internet? The, the, the Hong Kong charter you mentioned was actually, uh, you know, written by a group of activists who most of them were in exile across the world where they faced persecution from the government and then they have to be, you know, find, uh, have to resettle in you know, different countries such as the United States, the UK, uh, and other countries in Europe, right? So we come together and think that, you know, part of the democracy movement has to continue overseas, where we have to build solidarity across nations, and then we have to strategize together, we have to push for, uh, you know, certain policy agenda in the, you know, in the Western society, and we also want to keep telling the story of Hong Kong, right? So that charter was really the the, the culmination of, of that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the need for solidarity and the need for, uh, you know, common strategized things, right? But unfortunately, as you mentioned, right, uh, we, we, we use a, a internet service provider, a, a website hold, uh, you know, provider called Wakes, and then they, they announce that, you know, we violate certain internal policy of theirs, and they, they block our website, right? It showed that actually, you know, the, the pressure doesn't only come from the Chinese government, right? You know, sometimes Western countries could actually self-censor themselves, uh, uh, fearing that, you know, the Chinese government might come after them, right? And, you know, the similar story could be told in Hong Kong, where Google was actually under, you know, several inquiries from the Hong Kong government in handing over data, you know, the user data, to the government, right? And actually, uh, 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 you know, uh, Google actually has complied several times with the Hong Kong government requests, right? It shows that it's not actually a problem about the Chinese firewall, but actually, you know, Western companies could actually be involved if they're not complicit 
in the crackdown of freedom of speech, right? So I think it's really crucial for us to raise international awareness, call out companies that were uh, complicit in those events, but also, on the other hand, maintain pressure against China, right? You, you're absolutely right. I think China government is actually envisioning uh, uh, another firewall to be implemented in Hong Kong, where in Hong Kong, actually, you cannot go to separate websites that are politically sensitive, you know, uh, right now, right? You know, so I think that actually the firewall is now being built. So it's a matter of time where, you know, uh, uh, you know, slowly and gradually certain political contact might not, uh, contacts um, not be able to access in Hong Kong, and it's very worrying. But uh, I think we have to keep the pressure up and bring in corporate sector, bring in you know uh, you know American and other audience, and to pay attention to this issue of internet freedom. Yeah, I agree very much uh, what what Brian has said. Like what Brian's analysis, like well, just an antidote would be like well, um, right now, like even we try to post something online on, on say like well, uh, Facebook uh, as a kind of social media, uh, like our, our friends or our supporters, like well, who might, who might dare to like well, uh, give us a like, like well, just by clicking the like on, on the social media interface, they might no longer do so. They might have a lot of hesitation, like well, liking the post uh, written by like well, activists in, in exile. They might, they might have to rethink uh, where they, they should like the post or where they can like go share the post on their social media platform. Uh, they might have a lot of hesitation and some of them are even like, well, uh, delete, uh, they have deleted their account or, uh, changed their profile so as to like, well, maintain anonymous or to protect their, uh, privacy or, or, or security. So like, well, folks have been like, well, trying or adopting different tactics. Uh, to really to fend off like well the potential crackdown or danger looming just because of like well uh the plot like well uh considering by the government so that is just like a one very unfortunate development uh but but it might also show like well the resilience of, of the of, of the people in hong kong they are like well thinking ahead to see how they could cope with the situation um digitally I want to now address the recent Legislative Council elections. I understand um, the Legislative Council is uh, colloquially termed LEGCO, but um, it really should be called LAPCO because it's now just an assembly of party sycophants, lap dogs and lackeys, it seems, who were voted by 0.6% of the Hong Kong citizenry and vetted by the mainland. And they're currently actively hard at work to eviscerate the freedoms of Hong Kongers. May you tell us more about this LAPCO and its current activity? You are absolutely right. I think it's just a facade right now where uh, the rollback in terms of the electoral reform was so unprecedented. And then it will basically wipe out every electoral reform progress we have made in the past two or three decades, right? It was so bad that even the biggest democracy you know, party the, the Democratic Party in Hong Kong, which was known to be extremely moderate, very centralist, uh, if not slightly pro-Beijing, right? They don't have a single candidate who are willing to come out and say, I want to participate in that election, right? It was that bad where nobody in the pro-democracy camp think there is a realistic shot or any symbolic meaning to participate in such a fake election, right? It was basically handpicked and then you have to go through several 
screening mechanism. All of them were dictated by either the chief executive or by Beijing uh, elites, right? So it was so meaningless at that point. And then any participation in the current system uh, would likely to be seen to, you know, conferring legitimacy that the government doesn't deserve, right? So I think you will see, I think, uh, a lot of uh, boycott from citizens in Hong Kong who don't think their vote actually matters. Uh, uh, you will also see, you know, uh, you know, Hong Kong going into the direction of either Macau, where, again, right, the, the space for opposition is very little, or if not the mainland China where, you know, you know, all, all the legislative council or, you know, most of the, you know, uh, consultative body were, you know, a, a, a club for pro-Beijing elite, right, uh, for co-optation and for, you know, securing their allegiance and then they... So I, I think, you know, the Hong Kong electoral reform was very devastating and, you know, this coming election would be a, a very shameful event and I think it would tell, you know, the international society how, you know, uh, China actually disregard and doesn't value election at all. I want to speak now about the uh, Greater Bay Area, China's plan to integrate Hong Kong into other mainland cities, I think uh, nine in total with uh, Macau, in an effort to wrest it from any autonomy and purportedly create its own uh, Silicon Valley in the Pearl River Delta. I understand Lamb's Luntau Tomorrow Vision is part and parcel of this uh, development stampede, ostensibly a means to solve Hong Kong's persistent housing crisis, while of course helping real estate moguls. Uh, make a lot of money and turn the pristine island into an environmental disaster. Can you tell our audience more about this Greater Bay Area Integration Project and uh, this Lantau Tomorrow development scheme? Right, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the Hong Kong government has an obsession about, you know, integration into the mainland China. They think that Hong Kong strength comes from you know, blindedly, you know, integrating and, uh, you know, uh, cooperating with the system of, of, of the mainland China without recognizing that actually our strength is to remain our institutional advantage, right? Where we have free press, where we have rule of law, where we have accountability in our administrative system and such, right? These are the unique strength that was valued by international society, right? And Hong Kong, in desperation to please China and please, you know, Xi Jinping, they gave up all of them and just say, let's integrate and let's be a part of the, you know, the motherland, right? I think it's extremely short-sighted. And then it kind of, in the process of, in the process of that, right, you know, it kind of relinquished all the last bit of autonomy that we have, uh, you know, in the process, right? So the cities now, you know, can no longer, uh, you know, have a say in this future of development, right? You know, there has been debate about, you know, should we have a much more sustainable development where we, uh, you know, preserve part of our rural area, but, uh, you know, continue to develop. Now, you know, all that direction uh, is gone and it's basically succumbed to, you know, the, the, the higher agenda of, let's say, of Guangzhou or, you know, the Bay Area authorities, right? So I think that, you know, giving up on our, you know, city's autonomy and our own say in the direction of our development, I think it's really tragic. And it also shows that, you know, Hong Kong government just want to please the central government and just want to please, you know, you know, high official in Beijing rather than 
you know, valuing the say and the input of its own citizens. Mm, which you can see from uh, Carrie Lam's recent speech, right? All about <laughs> just not really targeted at the audience of Hong Kong, but uh, at the mainland. As Alex said, like about well, the target the audience of Carrie really about the mainland audience instead of like, well, uh, general Hong Kong audience. So Brian talked a bit about like, well, uh, the, the Lantau Island, and maybe I can like well, chime in and, 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 and stretch out a bit more about like, well, the, the, uh, the Greater Bay Area. Uh, I think like, well, like the, Lantau, the Lantau Island and the Greater Bay Area, like conceptually speaking, they are sort of interrelated. So it was like basically a plan that the, the Hong Kong government uh, tried to like, well, um, uh, address the local issues like well, like well, the housing issues, like the 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 the, the, uh, the rental prices, uh, uh, the the rising housing prices, uh, the uh, the housing market. So like what well, Lanzo Island was like well basically like a, a new uh, like what well, they are trying to like well make a like a new man-made island so they could like well build more housing and also to like well sustain the housing market uh, so that like the, the price won't fall. So like well. Um, uh, like well, Hong Kong's economy or the housing market would not turn into another bubble that would really collapse like Hong Kong's economy. And in, in this kind of context, we, we could also link it to like well, the idea of the Greater Bay Area. So like well, like well, since the 1980s, Hong Kong was always like well, the powerhouse of like well, bringing into uh, bringing in like well, capital, human resource, technology, uh, managerial skills or techniques uh, to China. So that, so that China or the Chinese government could reform its economy and transition from a socialist economy to a capitalist economy. So Hong Kong has always been uh, like the, uh, playing a key role in, in sustaining and transforming the Chinese economy. And, and, and the latest project for the Chinese government is about like, well, uh, the, the Greater Bay Area. So they were actually looking at like, well, the Tokyo Bay Area and the San Francisco Bay Area to think about how they could like, well, boost up or to like well strengthen their industrial capacity, uh, their capability to renovate and innovate, uh, to really to like well bring forward new technology. So like well the country and also uh, their locally groomed like companies could be more competitive, and they would need a plan. And so like well they would need like well manufacturers like well, in mainland China, but they would also need like well a city like Hong Kong to provide financial capital. Uh, to, to really like, well, maintain a connection, to stay connected globally with the global financial market and also like, well, international firms, no matter they are like well, legal firms or uh, technological companies like, well, that will really like, well, bring in new ideas or, or expertise. So like uh, Hong Kong uh, was like, well, uh, being planted or, or, or uh, according to plan would be in, incorporated into like, like the idea of the greater Bay Area uh, serving the interests uh, of the nation state, like what well, the Chinese government, instead of like well the the people in Hong Kong, yeah, uh, the, uh, the people of the city. So like well, folks in Hong Kong, like we were never consulted, like well whether we like the plan or not, whether we want Hong Kong to develop into this this kind of economy or not, like well we were never consulted, so we were forced, uh, like well to adopt this kind of plan, uh, as like well what happened in the political arena, we were not like well. Uh, given like a, a chance or the right to vote, and we were also not given the right to determine like or decide what kind of economic future do you want to like well uh, like well uh, step into. 
So it was pretty much like, well, the, the, the idea or the question of the greater, uh, greater Bay Area is pretty, it is pretty much like well, the same problem or the same coin. It's basically about like whether you're talking about the issue of Hong Kong from a political perspective or an economic perspective. Well, yeah, Hong Kong, it was an economic and is still an economic powerhouse. But part of that is because it had this creativity. It was allowed the creativity. Think of all the film that came out from Hong Kong and so forth. But Alex, I want to turn to the article that you recently co-wrote in Slate. And uh, you criticized the open letter to the Biden administration in July by numerous American groups uh, that warned the Biden administration not to be antagonistic towards uh, the Communist Party of China and cooperate with China due to the primacy of the existential crisis facing humanity, which is climate change. I mean, no one can argue that climate change is an existential crisis, although some might say that the real existential crisis is, you know, humanity, ourselves, (laughs) because we're the ones that are making it and uh, continue it. But um, you point out in your article that China continues to lead in greenhouse gas emissions. It still widely uses coal. I think 70% of its energy is still from coal. Um, And that it's wreaking environmental destruction uh, not only um, within its borders, but also... uh, outside of its borders as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Can we, what is the best way forward to um, bring China into line with climate change, but also not allow this moral equivalency um, with China and um, not uh, (laughs) leave the uh, Hong Kongers, the Taiwanese, the Tibetans, the Muslim minorities in China because we don't think we can do both? What is the way forward? That's a great question. I think it's also like a, 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 a million dollar question that I would want a solution and an answer. Uh, I think like, well, I, I don't have a definite answer, but I think like there are like multiple uh, approaches, like well, attempting to like what to address the question. And I think uh, what faces us is like, well, how we can acknowledge it is not an easy task uh, uh, to be addressed. It would be like a really challenging task. Because like we're talking about like a human rights issue, uh, environmental crisis, uh, uh, the, the challenges or the conundrum or the limitation of, of, uh, of our, the international system or a nation state approach. So like, well, by, by putting them together, it, like what well, we might see or identify a lot of like, well, self-contradicting elements uh, that might really not like, well, be productive or help us to like, well, to address like well, all the questions at once. But I think like, well, uh, why we wrote that article on Slack was because like, well, we see that like, well, sometimes the discussion about like human rights, uh, democracy issue, like, well, it seems to clash with like, well, um, the environmental agenda. But our question is that like, well, it doesn't seem to like, well, it, it does not necessarily like contradict with one another. Maybe we, we like the starting point of the discussion or the rethinking of the solution would have to start with like, well, the, uh, like, well, the environmental crisis and uh, the human rights or the humanitarian crisis—they actually like well uh, uh, correlate or or like well interrelated. They are they actually like well interact or intersect with one another. And the question is like well how we could put them together to think about like well we have to address like well both issues at once. It might not be easy, but like well uh, by like well prioritizing one over another, like in the case of like well uh, uh, the environmental debate, then like well. If we simply like well ask or urge the Chinese government to like collaborate with the Biden administration, 
then then the, then the, then the end result, the end product would be like well, like well, the Western countries or democracy lending credibility uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, so as to give like well the Chinese government more legitimacy to crack down on its civil society, like uh, uh, communities in in Uyghur, in Tibet, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan. Uh, they would all be endangered if we, like, well, simply overlook like, like, like the new old dynamic. So the question I have to start with, like, when we're thinking, like, the power relation uh, of, like, well, uh, these communities and the Chinese government and maybe uh, the, the Biden administration or the Western countries and democracy at large. So this is simply, it is simply like a, a conceptual answer. It is not something that we could, like, well, bring immediate solution. But I think, like, at least we might have to, like, well, uh, reframe our question and to uh, rethink, uh, uh, like, well, uh, the, the set of challenges uh, facing us, and uh, and and on many level, like, well, uh, if we want to, like, well, talk more specifically, uh, we might say, like, well, hey, the the way or the reason why we can't hold like the Chinese government accountable is because, like, well, it is not a democracy. Uh, like, well, citizens in China or in Hong Kong, uh, Tibet, and Uyghur they could not really hold their government accountable. Like without like, well, uh, the promise and the securing of democracy and the human rights in those regions, like, you, like the power relation would always be in balance and the government could always outweigh uh, the people's well-being. And how could you like, well, put trust or place trust uh, in such an authoritarian government and regime? Uh, that would be a question that we really have to address. Like, well, without addressing them, uh, I think it would be quite naive to believe or, or to, to, to equal uh, the people to uh, the regime. I think there are like two different like uh, conceptual entity and category that we have to differentiate. And, 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 and we have to be like, well, really nuanced and specific when we talk about the issues at hand. And surely, like, well, many, many like we're progressive in the Western countries, they might critique their own government. I think they are all valid critiques and they're all valid questions like raised by like, well, many of the progressive or like, well, uh, 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 um, like, uh, Western counterparts in those countries. But the question is like, well, while they urge the government to reform the environmental policy or the economic policy to adopt a more like a low carbon consumption and production lifestyle, then I also have to think about like, well, uh, uh, uh like, well, like, it, it is never just about like a Western centric worldview. They have to also have to expand like well their analysis to other regions, say East Asia, and what's the role of US or other Western countries in East Asia, and what is their role like in interacting with like the Chinese government in suppressing or cracking down the human rights defenders and, and ordinary people in, in, in mainland China and beyond. I think those questions have to like well being put back in, in context. So we could like have a better perspective in identifying the question and coming up with like a better solution that could really address uh, the question posted by Alex, which is like a huge question uh, that would require like well immense effort and collaboration and coordination to address. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It was, you did a great job of it, though. I wanted to get both your opinions on what I find a rather new tactic in uh, Chinese diplomacy. So while it's intensely cracking down on dissent within its borders and um, also, you know, showing muscle in, well, in Hong Kong, it seizes its borders in Taiwan um, currently, which it also 
sees as part of one China, but uh, of course uh, Taiwan uh, does not. But um, it's, it, despite China doing all this, it, I've noticed that in this past year, in on the world stage at the UN, um, and now it, it got the lowest votes, I think, historically ever, but it is on the Human Rights Committee. It did get voted on the Human Rights Committee. And um, it's now uh, rampaging and criticizing all these other states about their own human rights abuses and saying, you can't criticize us because you are violating human rights. At home, and a lot of the criticism is correct, right? Like when it said, "Well, Canada, you can't talk about genocide. Look what you did with Indigenous people. Australia, look what you did with your Indigenous people." And you know that is correct. Yes, it was genocide of the Indigenous communities, but that doesn't make what China's doing right now, including having uh, admitted to 1.3 million people being in internment camps where they're being educated and giving you know work experience instead of forced labor. It's a horrible tactic, but, you know, I wonder if it's effective on an international level because uh, part of what they're saying is true. I mean, Western democracies do have flagrant human rights abuses, have committed war crimes. So how can we use this to our advantage to then bounce back on China and say, yes, we have a lot of work to do, but that doesn't mean that you don't. (laughs) It doesn't mean that what you're doing is okay. Right, absolutely. I think it's a logical fallacy where, you know, two wrongs doesn't, doesn't make one right, right? It's like you, you can't then point to others people bad behavior to excuse yours, right? So I think for us as activists, it's really not about taking a stand. We, we obviously want to can, like, you know, stand for solidarity for all human rights abuse, right? So it's not like, you know, we can forgive China because, you know, other countries have their past historical atrocity, right? So we have to point all of them out and call them out and hold them to the same standard, right? So I think, you know, it's really about holding them to the same standard of human rights and human dignity, right? So I think China, you know, have a bill. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a complex phenomenon where, you know, China on the one hand want to be a major international player, right? Given the size of its economy, given the ambition uh, of, of China in the international leadership, right? There's no way where China would not engage with the world, right? But also, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, China was, you know, faced a lot of uh, embarrassment, right? When, you know, when they try to, you know, uh, when other countries point out their human rights record, right? So I think China is is in a very, you know, uh, embarrassing position where they, on the one hand, they want to be a major player in the world. But on the other hand, uh, you know, what China is doing doesn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, compare with the, you know, human rights standard or the international standard, right? So I think we as activists, we really want to keep, you know, calling out China for its human rights appeals. Doesn't allow China to take advantage of the recognition and the, uh, you know, the the advantage of being in a Western-led rule-based system but, you know, denying and kind of keep suppressing, you know, human rights uh, in, in its own backyard, right? So I think uh, uh, I think we have to hold China accountable to a common set of standards, and we have to, you know, keep the pressure on China into international front, right? Yeah, I just want to add uh, one point to what Brian has said. Like, well, I think a, a natural response would be, like, well, uh, yes, the, the, the Western countries uh, should do better, 
but but the Chinese government cannot shine, shine, shine away from its responsibility. I think what is more important or at stake is like, well, folks might have to uh, like try to understand what, what is the strategy or the agenda setting behind like, well, what the Chinese government is saying when they try to accuse like, well, the, the Western countries of committing like, well, equally courageous uh, 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 like, well, uh, human rights like, well, uh, crime or, or crisis. Uh, like usually when they try to like well make such a move, uh, like well China experts or like well, folks who study Chinese history, they might tend to see like well hey the Chinese government is actually like well catching up and try to use their leverage to reshape the international world order. Like well because like well for the past uh, 150 years like well at least in the Chinese narrative, they will always talk about like well uh, uh, shame and guilt. Uh, like, well, how, like, well, uh, the Chinese uh, people and the Chinese government were being colonized and being bullied. And so they have been, like, well, uh, uh, like, well, uh, sacrificing a lot and, and try to, like, well, really, like, well, kick in all the guilt and, and all the bully by, by the Western or European countries. And to the point that, like, well, they would agree or signed on different international agreements. To the point that, like, well, when they when they feel like, well, um, they they are they are uh, up to par with their Western counterparts, or when they feel like, well, they are strong enough in terms of uh, their capacity of nation state, uh, they must start like, well, saying like, well, nonsense stuff or or or, or like or bullshit things, uh, like, well, hey, like, well, the Western countries are also like doing something wrong, and what. What they're really trying to do is like to, to really to like well really like uh, reshape like well the global debate or the global discourse in the global arena to say that hey like well the Chinese government is no longer weak and you could no longer just accuse us of doing something wrong you are also doing wrong I think uh, like uh, the agenda behind like well the Chinese government's accusation that is really uh, worrying and alarming what and what they are trying to do like well behind the scenes. Or uh, the strategic, or the, the or the strategic move, uh, or the goal of the strategic, or the goal of the strategic move is what we might also be of concern. I wanted to get your opinion on the Magnitsky Act and if you think it's effective. So for me personally, I don't like sanctions on uh, nations. I th- I think that it was a horrible thing that we did. It has uh, led to so many innocent people. Uh, being denied medical services and just uh, kept whole countries down like Cuba because, and, and, and remember, these people are being punished for their dictators. I mean, instead, like, it's just an ultimate injury, right, um, to a populace. Whereas the Magnitsky Act, what it does is it punishes um, the individuals that are actually perpetrating these uh, violations on their people. So uh, Carrie Lam and uh, other people in the um, Hong Kong government uh, a sanction and can't really use any banking services. In fact, it was a little fun to watch her um, admit that it was inconvenient to have piles and piles of cash at home because she can't use any banks in, in Hong Kong. But um, what, do you think it's effective? Is, is it effective to have these sanctions um, or is, is there going to be um, a repercussion where they can utilize these sanctions to say, well, look what the West is doing and it's hypocritical and they're punishing us. I mean, I think I think when you punish a whole people, that that's what it leads to, right? Hey, look what they're doing to all of us. They're so hypocritical. They don't care about you. But maybe, but when it's just punishing the actual aggressors, it might be effective. I don't know. What What is your opinion on this? 
Right. I think we are certainly aware of the critical debate evaluating, you know, the effectiveness of U.S. past sanction policy, right? But I would like to point out, you know, Hong Kong situation is a little bit different in terms of this relationship that is very unique with United States, right? So United States in 2020, uh, in 1992, passed an act called Hong Kong Policy Act, which confers actual status to Hong Kong and treated distinctively uh, outside of mainland China in terms of uh, export or economic control, right? So uh, Hong Kong actually has been used by China, as, uh, you know, with this special status uh, in kind of arbitraging, if you will, right, to, to take advantage of the differential institutional setting of Hong Kong and mainland China and benefit from it, right? So one concrete example would be, you know, the U.S. has uh, a place embargo on Iran or North Korea, right? But actually, China was able to maintain some trade with those countries using Hong Kong's special status, right? Such that it will not be, you know, counted, uh, you know, uh, uh, as, um, as China doing trade with Hong uh, to doing trade with those countries, right? It's about Hong Kong, uh, you know, doing trade with those countries, right? So I think, you know, uh, one of the demand of the Hong Kong people is actually, hey, you know, China should not be allowed to take advantage of Hong Kong's special status actually maintained and championed by the United States uh, in doing business and circumventing international rules while repressing, you know, human rights situation in Hong Kong, right? So I think, you know, uh, the last administration and the current administration have recognized that fact and actually, you know, is taking steps to take away that special status, right? Which originally should be tied upon, you know, satisfactory, you know, uh, you know, human rights situation on the ground, right? So I think in terms of quote unquote sanctioning is a very complex phenomenon when it comes to Hong Kong. But the on the other hand, the the, the, the way you mentioned about, you know, um, um global, global map, right? We call it global map in the global ministry act, is a attempt to kind of uh, individualize the punishment, individualize, you know, the, the, the sanctioning to officials who are involved, right? And you know, that is actually a very powerful move because, you know, all United States economic players would not be allowed to uh, you know, interact with those sanctioned officials, right? So, uh, uh, you know, there was a joke in the, you know, in, in the global mass circle people where if you use FAMO to uh, and, and type out Cuba uh, and, you know, uh, your, 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 your trans, transfer of money is actually going to be, you know, scrutinized and, you know, uh, to make sure that it is actually in compliance with the law, right? That That is how, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, complete the, 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 the punishment will be, right? So I think having that surgical, very targeted approach to sanction, obviously, is, uh, I think, is a good direction. But I think uh, also we, we need coordinated effort from the world, right? It's not just about U.S. sanctioning certain individuals, right? It's about the West and other European countries, uh, Australia, New Zealand, etc., come together and coordinate their effort in the sanctioning, right? I think that would be the most effective. You know, otherwise, player can just circumvent the system and, you know, seek refuge from other countries, right? So I think U.S. should continue to, uh, you know, employ Magnitsky Act, but also should coordinate and actually with other countries who have similar, you know, instrument, right? So I think, you know, a coordinated plan will, will be much more effective in the long run. 
Yeah, and that and that is actually um, just my final question because I've been thinking everything that's been happening in Hong Kong and relating it to Tibet, right? Because China annexed Tibet in 1950, and then there was a subsequent protest and a brutal crackdown. And um, since the train line, I mean, China has heavily mined and extracted from Tibet, which has you know lithium, gold, copper, you name it. It's bottled its water. It's wrecked communities, forcibly uh, removed them. Uh, it wants to authorize the next Dalai Lama. <laughs> and the thing is, in the 90s, I mean, okay, so I'm much older than you, right? <laughs> so I'm a child of the 80s. So in the 90s, it was a big deal, right? Free Tibet was a big deal. And it was everywhere. And there was pressure on China. And from, from not just a nation perspective, but we're talking about from the populace in the popular media, Musical groups like Rage Against the Machine and the Beastie Boys, I mean, they would hold free Tibet concerts and so forth. And then that kind of withered away. And, you know, all that's left is some free Tibet shirts. It's so tragic because Tibet needs our help now, right? And then I think, how do we prevent Hong Kong being another Tibet? It's in the media now, but then it just withers away. What do we do for all of these people that the Communist Party wants to control and just stamp out all democratic resistance. What is the best step forward? Right. Right, absolutely. As you mentioned, right, if you look at 90s or early 20s Hollywood movie, it's very easy actually to spot a certain, you know, several movie that features Tibet in part of its narrative, right? You know, uh, but you don't see that right now. You know, it, it, it will be hard to imagine a, a, a movie in Hollywood that features Hong Kong protests as part of his storytelling, right? I think it really shows how how much China has grown uh, and then how much, uh, you know, control and, uh, and command it exerts on the international society, right? Where, you know, the business sector would, 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 would be in deference to China, right? They don't want to, you know, you know uh, be shut shut out of Chinese, uh, you know, consumer market, right? They don't want to, you know, provoke China. So they, they, they would do all kinds of self-censorship, right? It's not only about business. It's about, you know, cultural sector that we talk about, right? It's about, uh, you know, music sector. It's about Hollywood sector. It's about, you know, even everyday life where people use TikTok or use, like, Instagram to, 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 to you know, teenager love using those media to uh, tell their own story. But, you know, there have been censorship going on in terms of telling the story of repression and telling the story of resistance, right? So I think we really have to broaden our, broaden our movement into one that, you know, involves not only, you know, the activist circle, not only the NGO circle, but how do we bring together consumer sectors, right? How do we bring together investment sector? How do we bring together entertainment sector? and have a comprehensive strategy in tackling, you know, the way China won the diffuse and influence and silent people, you know, using its, you know, money and, you know, and, 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 and its hegemonic, you know, image, right? So uh, I think, you know, one one example we can learn from is the, the, the Uyghurs, right? You know, one-fifth of the cotton in the world market was actually produced uh, in Xinjiang, right? And obviously we know uh, there are extreme human rights abuse there. Many of the cotton was produced by forced labor and a lot of major brands in the Western world are actually, you know, 
have forced labor cotton in their supply chain. Right? So uh, in the past year, there has been movement trying to kind of, uh, you know, delink that kind of uh, supply chain from, you know, Xinjiang and, you know, Uyghur forced labor. But, you know, China retaliate by saying that, you know, if you do that, you know, we're going to shut you out of our internal market. And a lot of companies, you know, H&M, you know, Adidas actually, you know, retreat from their own uh, statement before, right? So I think we uh, who are in the Western society as consumer, as investor, as, you know, uh, people who support the business, how can we, you know, counter China's threat and counter China's bullying of certain com- uh, company or certain sector that are willing to stand up? But, you know, uh, you know, I, I think it really have to come together whenever this kind of major incident happens. We need, you know, the society to back them up. We need to, uh, we need to have the state to back them up and enforce, you know, higher compliance standards. And we have to push back, you know, China as a coordinated front, right? You know, China loves to use the phrase of, you know, you know, a united front. I think it's really about uh, incumbent upon us in the West to think about how can we come up with our own united front in uh, countering China's influence. Yeah, I think Brian has talked a lot about like, well, uh, the past, like uh, uh, some of the looming challenges and, and the consumers movement at large. Uh, some of the possible strategies and tactics, like while countering uh, the propaganda or the aggression of the Chinese government. Um, for, for me, like while thinking along the same line, if I may like, well, circle back or connect it back to like, well, a uh, key term that I brought up by Alex earlier, like, well, the crisis of humanity. Uh, like, I, I don't have like an immediate answer or like a concrete answer to the question, but I always think about like, well, how can we produce or generate uh, sufficient conditions that could like well help transition uh uh like well the, the Chinese government for of a terror regime to a democratic regime. And that might be like one layer of the question, but we might also want to like ask relevant questions for like well uh, uh the Hong Kong government as well as like well uh, uh government elsewhere as well as like well uh the international system. Because it seems like when we talk about Hong Kong's issue uh, it is a question of Hong Kong, but it's also a question of the Chinese governance, but also a question of uh, the global governance, how like well, the, the Western countries or, or the world has been tolerating like well, the Chinese government to grow into its own weight and to govern its uh, political system and its economy, its civil society in a way that is really counterproductive like to the growth of global democracy and, and freedom and, and so on and so on. So then, then when we when we see that like well, the, the past machines, it seems like they have, they are no longer working and and they no longer gain any legitimacy. That you should no longer say that like well, economic development would foster a democratic transition in China. Then how could we rethink like well uh, different pre- premises that have gone wrong in the past, and how we could like incorporate like well new actors, say like well the business community, the business sectors into part of this like well progressive force. I think like well, people may have a lot of debate about it, like uh, a lot of divergence on like well, who might be the right actors to include, uh, who who are the right allies, and and how we could like well foster future that could address like well uh, 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 political challenges, economic uh, inequality, environmental crisis, uh, uh, and, and so on and so on. But it seems like well, we are in an age of depression, but we are also at a moment of transition that like, well, uh, there's like, there will be like a huge, a great transformation uh, in the years to come. And, and we are 
we are at the forefront of this movement to see like well what might happen. And moving forward, like well, like I, I, I strongly believe that like well, the, the scenario and the dynamic would be radically different from like what happened in the past thirty years. Just because uh, if we simply like well, uh, try to like well, uh, 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 take a snapshot and, and see like well, what happened like well, between nineteen eighty nine to uh, twenty nineteen, it was an era that like well, the, the world was naively or or or, or optimistically uh, trying to like adopt an engagement policy. That wishfully hoping to engage China, so that like well, the Chinese government could, could reform itself. Uh, but uh, like that solution uh, went bankrupt, and the civil society in China couldn't really sustain a democratic transition. So moving forward, like well, uh, uh, like standing at the point of 2021, uh, how we could like rethink like well the, the questions and the answers that were posed in the past and try to come up with new solutions. Uh, as might have like freshed out by, by Brian and, and some others, I think that would be um, uh, uh, the answers that we have to identify and locate. Uh, we might have, we might not have like well, all the solutions and the answers yet, but but we tend to see like well, uh, this is a new era, this is a new stage uh, that like well, the Hong Kong fight it has become a global fight, and we are also part of the global actors. Like well, say Hong Kong DC is based in the US. But we are also thinking strategically, like, well, how, like, well, the politics in the U.S. connect with, like, the politics in Europe and Australia and East Asia. And, and, and this kind of new, uh, globalized, uh, uh, views might, might also, like, foster new ideas and solutions, like, like, to, to the fight and, and to every of us, like, well, moving forward. Um, so this is another, like, another conceptual, like, well, uh, like solution or brainstorming. Uh, to the question I posed, but uh, but but I mean, like what? But I think like many folks have been thinking along the same line. You see, like well, how those conceptual, new conceptual ideas could translate into concrete, like well, policy goals, uh, like advocacy work, and action items could, that could move things forward. Hmm. Yeah, we need an international and grassroots effort, I think, and realize that we're all connected. It can happen anywhere, right? You can lose your rights anywhere. And the more that people don't have rights, the easier it is for other governments to take rights from their own people. Thank you so much for your um, acute insight and also your personal insight today. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to all of you, Brian and Alex. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.